Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Welcome back to Energy and Efficiency with Emily. Today we have Allison Bales on, so special guest. Um, I'm very excited to have him here with us. Been following him for a number of years, so I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about who he is and how he got started in this and why he's uh, excited about building science. Um, hi, Emily. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate that. Uh, um, my name is Allison, and I am not a woman. If any of you don't know me and are wondering about that. Um, I am in Who's Who of American Women, though, so, but that's just a name mistake, not because I used to be a woman or anything. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, my background is physics. I uh, had a career, a short career in the world of physics. I went to graduate school after teaching high school for a few years and then uh, taught in academia for about six years left academia in 2004, and my uh, launching pad for the new career after academia was building a house while I was a professor at the University of West Georgia. Um, I loved building that house. I learned a whole lot of building science doing that, and uh, also got to spend two full summers working full-time, dawn to dusk every day, and I loved that and left academia in 2004, started my own company. I did home energy ratings and load calculations and then got into assessments on existing homes, which led me to doing contracting on existing homes. And I uh, bought a box truck and an insulation blower and did a lot of crawl space encapsulations and a bunch of fun stuff like that. So I've spent probably thousands of hours in attics and crawl spaces and, um, I uh, have not built any other houses. I just built the one house, although I did remodel the bathroom at the condo that I lived in until last year. And um, so I've got a lot of hands-on experience uh, and the physics background, and I've done a lot of, a lot of work over the last, I guess, 16 years now since I left academia and um, learned a lot of building science and uh, people apparently think I know a good deal about it. Sometimes I think they know, they think I know more than I do know. That's a common thing that seems to happen uh, in building science. I've had people say to me recently like, oh, you know, I don't understand, you know, your level of expertise in building science. And I was like, I am not a building science expertise. That's what, you know, so I think that's one of the things I love the best about the building science community is most of us are pretty humble. We always think somebody else knows more than we do. Um, and it's kind of great to learn from each other. It's part of the reason why I started the podcast and I've talked to people all over the United States because, you know, how you treat building science in different areas is completely different. And so it's exciting for me. Um, you know, we have a pretty good core group here in the New England area. Um, you know, we're all kind of the cold climate, you know, thinking about a lot of the moisture, but there are other parts of the country that are hot and dry or hot and wet and, or just wet you know, and so it's fascinating for me to be part of that community and everybody's just willing to talk about their experience and what they've done. And I think a lot of us have said like, oh, well, we've tried a lot of things, you know, we've done different things over the years. So I'm sure in the last 16 years, you've tried a bunch of different things. And I have to say, I'm excited to hear you talk about the upcoming book, because when I first saw it online that you were writing uh, another book, 
all I saw was um, houses need to breathe and it didn't say the rest of the sentence. And I thought, oh no, what am I missing? Like, what, what has happened in the world of building science? So um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about the new book and why you thought now was the time to, to write about basically houses needing to breathe, or really I'm thinking it's going to have something to do with ventilation and indoor air quality. Yep. So um uh, first of all, this is my first book, uh, unless oh. you count my, my unless you count my dissertation from grad school. But um, really, you've I, written so many things on Energy Vanguard. I just made the yeah. assumption you've written more than one book before. I've seen so <laughs> many things uh, by you in the past. Well, I, I certainly have written enough content for multiple books because I've been writing the Energy Vanguard blog for ten years now. We just passed the ten year anniversary at the beginning of this month on the seventh. So 10 years, gosh, it's hard to believe. <laughs> and, Congratulations. And that, yeah, thank you. And in that time, I've, I've published over 900 articles. A few of them have been guest posts and um, some other uh, staff members at Energy Vanguard earlier. But almost all of the, the 900-something are, are mine. And I, I've wanted to put together a book for a long time, and I'm finally doing it. And I put myself out there with this campaign to – get pre-orders for the book to help support my carving out the time to do it. And also to, for me to have more of an incentive to make it happen. Cause now I've got these people who've put down some money for, so now I really have to make it happen. Absolutely. The, the title of the book, as you said, uh, the first part of it is a house needs to breathe, but then it's dot, 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 or does it? So that's the second part that you didn't see when you first saw it. A house needs to breathe, or does it? Um, because as you and I both know, it doesn't need to breathe. This idea that a house needs to breathe, well, well there's multiple facets of that. But most people who use that statement, a house needs to breathe, are talking about air leakage. Right. And it's usually coming from a builder who doesn't want to do all the air sealing and who thinks that the new codes and everything requiring airtight houses are, are BS, not of the building science type. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so they, they're using that to say that, well, a house needs to breathe. You, you, because if you make it too tight, then you're going to have bad indoor air quality and people are going to get sick, which is the absolutely wrong idea because if you leave a house leaky, then you're relying on random air leaks, which means if some of that air is leaking in from a moldy crawl space or a moldy basement, um, are you getting fresh air for the people inside? No, absolutely not. Or from a dirty attic or worse from the garage, which is where some of the worst indoor air pollutants are or come from. So we don't want a, a house to breathe uh, in that way by having extra air leakage. We want to make a an airtight house, and then have mechanical ventilation to bring in the outdoor air. And that is um, for the people. It's the people who need to breathe, not the house. That is a statement I say a lot. Um, I've been teaching a building science uh, slash sustainable design class for uh, since 2013. And that's always my first question on day one. Does the house need to breathe? And without fail, they all say yes. And I'm like, yeah. no, no, yeah. people need to breathe. Um, and like you, for a number of years back in 2009, when the market was uh, pretty terrible to be an architect, I did a lot of um, 
uh, residential home energy consulting. And so I have been in a lot of attics and a lot of basements. And the more attics and the more basements you've been in, the more you agree that houses should should not breathe. Because, you know, the stuff that you find in attics and basements is it's pretty disgusting, you know, you know, in older houses, uh, even in, you know, just having a house that's been there for some amount of time, you know, you start to get dust and build up and it's a really good reminder. Uh, so that's my second follow-up question usually is how many people have been in their attic? Uh, most people have been in their basements, but not a lot of people have been in their attic. So it, I say, well, climb up in your attic and then come back and, and tell me if you, if you'd like to breathe in the air from your attic. And so that starts to, to get people's attention. But I agree that generally we get a lot of pushback from builders um, or homeowners who are really concerned about, you know, something that maybe their builder has said, or maybe they've read online. There's, a, there's so much misinformation, I think, about building science and building in general online and say, oh, no, the house has to breathe. It can't, it can't be tight or, you know, we're all going to get sick and say, oh, well. Let me explain how that works. So I appreciate that you're writing this book that has a catchy title that will attract the attention of homeowners and, and builders alike, I think, moving forward. And, and then those of us building science nerds who are already yep. on board and can't wait to read it. Yep. And uh, as most of us in the building science world already know, airtightness is one of the most cost-effective uh, things that you can do to make a house energy efficient. It also gets you better indoor air quality because you're not bringing in the bad stuff. Um, it also makes the house more durable because you can avoid moisture problems by bringing moisture air into wall cavities uh, that causes condensation, that causes things to rot and maybe grow stuff, and then you've got indoor air quality issues again too. So yeah, air tightness is number one in pretty much everybody's book when it comes to making houses um, work better, uh, become high performance homes and have all the good things that we want. Comfort, indoor air quality, efficiency, durability. Yeah, and I would say um, probably in the last five to 10 years, uh, it seems like manufacturers are getting on board with that. So they're making products that are now making it easier for people to reach air tightness levels. And there are still lots of great contractors out there who are caulking and sealing and taping every seam every but then there are fully adhered membranes now which might make a really great air seal or liquid applied or um, I've talked to two aero barrier techs recently about the potential for using aero barrier as a, an air sealing method on existing and not existing homes and so they're the products are starting to make it easier for people to meet these targets in your area, what your air tightness rate is. Maine is working on, or was prior to this whole uh, shelter in place thing, working on adopting the 2015 code, which I believe is a ACH of three. If they adopt that as is, will be a big shock for a lot of the building community in Maine because we were previously on 2009, which had a seven ACH 50, but also had the ability to visually inspect so they weren't doing blower door testing. So we don't even know if people were meeting 7ACH50 because 
technically you didn't have to test for it. Yeah, and in Georgia, we, um, we actually led the country for a short time because we were the first state to adopt mandatory blower door testing. As you said, the model code, the International Energy Conservation Code, IECC, allows you to do a blower door test or a visual inspection. And if your state didn't say, no, visual inspection's not adequate, like Georgia did, builder can go with the visual inspection, they're gonna do that. Because number one, it's probably easier to pass that. Number two, it's probably less expensive. You don't have to hire a third party to come in and do a blower door test. Yeah, well, and I have to be honest, you know, every time the code changes, it takes a long time for, um, you know, anybody who's in charge of the code to catch up with everything that they're responsible for looking at. So a visual inspection, if they're not a building science professional or have worked in some, you know, air sailing and higher performance I don't know what they were necessarily looking for. You know, what was the approval on a visual inspection or, or were they just like, yep, looks like you built it well. You've got your hurricane clips and, you know, Tyvek on the outside, you're good. Um, so for me, when, the, when they didn't adopt doing blower door testing, and you know, nobody's going to do any, I don't want to say nobody's going to do any more than they have to, but, um, you know, when you have to pay somebody to come out with a blower door and test that and then you fail and you have to do something more. And so if there was a way kind of around that, it, people would do it. So um, I've had a blower door since 2009 and carted around with me all the time. I'm like, it literally takes like a minute and a half to set it up and find out like it's a, it takes more time to walk around and find out what you forgot to close or lock or cover or oh yeah the dryer vent's not connected or you know, all the of fireplace cover, fireplace get the ashes out of the fireplace or cover them <laughs> yes only done that once uh yep, yep, <laughs> you only right. make that mistake once for sure I did that uh, too. and of course it was a white carpet when i did it <laughs> oh no oh no i got lucky that it was um that it was just on a wood floor so it was very oh, easy to yeah. to yeah. Uh, clean up afterwards but you're like oh it'll be fine and then and then it's not. Yeah. But you've written 900 articles over the last 10 years through Energy yeah. Vanguard. So is is the new book going to be uh, 900 chapters long? <laughs> all of the all of the wisdom. No, 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 no. <laughs> that would that would be bad for more than one reason. Um, number one, it would be disjointed because uh, my articles are all over the place. Number two. My earlier articles, uh, well, I had some of my most popular articles are ones that I wrote in the first year. Mm -hmm. um, but but there's others of my earlier articles where I didn't really know as much as I should have known about the topic I was writing about. Which, you know, writing the blog has been a big learning experience for me. It's, I've had a lot of fun with it and also a, a lot of um, consternation. As I put an article out there and then I get criticized by, you know, some of the people who know way more than I do and have been doing it a lot longer than I have, people like Michael Blasnick or John Proctor, or, uh, people who've been out there and they write and say, oh, Allison, that's not really true. <laughs> I say, oh, <laughs> I have to go and correct myself. And In some cases, that's, that's great. Um, information that like it's it's hard to put yourself out there and say that yeah. and every once in a while I catch myself and I'm like oh that's not what I meant or what I should have said and yeah. you know I go back 10 years ago and things that I wrote 10 years ago too and I'm like boy what I didn't know you know back then so of course yeah. you know yeah. I wouldn't and even things that were great back then there are new ways or better ways or just different ways that we're doing things now than what we were doing 10 years ago um, then you see Green Building Advisor and you put something out there and 
and then somebody comments on it and they comment on that, you know, and um, yeah. part of the reason I started the podcast was those of us who are really interested in building science can spend a long time on Green Building Advisor, but it's not a great resource always for people who are new and jumping in because there's a lot of either conflicting opinions about how to approach a subject or there's just so much information i mean there's just a vast amount of information yep. on that so i love that you're kind of dialing it down in a book format on what you want to talk about and what's really important right now and in the whole indoor air quality and, and probably going to be even more important after so many people have have now stayed at home and worked at home i always talk about you know we spend 90 percent of our time indoors and if you if you work in an office building, that building maybe is set up with fresh air ventilation and some other things because they thought about it as an office and people and, being and maybe there. and maybe that system actually works properly, but Correct. often they don't. <laughs> they don't. They don't often. Um, in fact, I've been working on um, having a building Energy Star certified, and um, we did the inspection. They put a really great solar system on the roof. It, it's it's a great building, and they were actually doing a lot of all the right things. But we did a mechanical inspection, and we found out that their ventilation system wasn't working correctly. And it took us a long time to adjust that so that it was supplying the right amount of ventilation to the certain spaces. You know, because over time a building gets carved up, it gets changed, like this used to be in this room and now it's part of that room. And so there was just some adjustment that needed to happen in order for that building to, to run correctly. But if you take that back a step, how many people are doing that in their own home? And now they're all working from home. I know here in my office behind me, um, I have, a, a little room and I go in and I close the door and because I'm a building science nerd I have a yoohoo and I brought it in here and I wanted to know you know what were the VOCs what was the carbon dioxide what was you know what was going on in here and I'm like well I spend all day in here <laughs> the carbon dioxide gets pretty high <laughs> so yep. do you remember like oh we gotta work with the door open and the two dogs maybe not hang out in here all day and maybe we need to consider some ventilation in in this office space which I guess if you don't know those things, you don't even think to look for them. So now we have people spending 95% of their time indoors in their own home with no mechanical ventilation and just hoping that it's leaky enough to provide the ventilation. <laughs> the house need. needs to breathe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you're like, huh. And the epidemic, I think there's a lot, well, right now we're, dealing with this virus but even before that we were dealing with a lot of people who were having mold and allergy issues and kind of not realizing that so much of that is because of our houses and not having the proper ventilation like being leaky and drawing that air in from your wet and moldy and who knows what else basement is causing respiratory issues for people all over and it sort of hasn't been addressed because oh my house is leaky and it's drafty and well, in all the wrong reasons. <laughs> yep. Yep. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, one of the articles I wrote several years ago was, uh, are you breathing dead possum? Speaking of wet basement, this was a wet crawl space, a, a vented <laughs> crawl space, and a possum died in the crawl space. Oh, no. And it just so happened that the possum died in the spot where the return duct was, and the return duct had come loose from the fitting, and the, the duct was open on the ground right next to the dead possum. So when the system was running, it was just sucking in straight crawl space air right next to where the dead possum was. Oh no. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so crawl spaces are, are uh, often a problem. I, I mean, you probably have more, a lot more basements than crawl spaces, but I think you probably do have some crawl spaces up there. We have some crawl spaces. We have a lot of ledge. So in some cases mm -hmm. where people wanted basements and couldn't get a basement, they yeah. end up with a crawl space, um, which could also mean that they have, because they have ledge, they didn't cover it with some kind of slab. So they also have water and moisture and all kinds of other things in their crawl spaces. So, so yeah, um, I'm actually kind of anti-basement trying to get people on board with the whole idea of, yeah. of no basements. Um, Maine has a lot of water. It seems silly to me that we're building all these reverse swimming pools so that we can have stuff. I've talked a lot about climate change on the podcast, but as you know, as climate change moves further and further north and it gets warmer and warmer here, like we didn't hardly have any snow here this year. And maybe it was a fluky winter or maybe that's going to be our new norm. But back in the day in Maine, you know, you had the front house, back house, side house, barn, and you wanted to go from one to the other without having to go outside and take care of the livestock and the farms and all of that mm -hmm. without going outside because winters were really harsh. And nobody owns the back 40 anymore. Most people are not farmers. And, you know, we don't have cold cellars and all of those things that were kind of traditional Maine. So maybe we don't need basements and stuff and we need to spend more time outside and all of the other things. That's, I mean, that's my personal opinion. Everybody chooses to do what they want, you know, kind of differently. But we're, we're looking at this whole idea of no basements and smaller houses and more time outside and fresher ventilation and dealing with some of the indoor air quality issues that you have, you know, with the mold or possum, that's really gross, but possums. Um, but also that a lot of people are experiencing more allergies because more grows here or um, the pollen has been really terrible. And so that house needs to breathe kind of goes back to that. That's the same as just leaving the window open or being outside. And if you're allergic to whatever blooming or grass, then that fresh air ventilation with a HEPA filter is so much better air quality for the inside of your house. So we've had a couple of clients that have wanted ERVs or HRVs because they have seasonal allergies and have been really impressed at how much of a difference that makes in the house too. Yep. Are you getting questions now? Um, one thing that comes up on the BS plus beer virtual uh, show that Mike and I have been doing for the last couple of weeks uh, is, you know, is there any way with ventilation to handle some of the coronavirus stuff? And I don't know that any of us really know the answer to that because there's still so much unknown about the virus. But have you heard much about that? Have people been asking you? Um, yes. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of unknowns. And one is how long the, the virus can stay airborne. If it's uh, droplets, the droplets that somebody sneezes out or coughs out, most of that falls out of the air pretty quickly. And that's why the, we have the six foot of social distance because six feet is about as far as it's going to go before it falls out of the air. Mm -hmm. There's um, some, some people saying that some of it, though, aerosolizes. Um, aerosols are smaller particles that can float around for a longer time mm -hmm. and they can go throughout the air. Those are the things that filtration can affect. We don't know how much of this virus is in that form and how long it stays around if it is. But for that kind of stuff, filtration can help. Mm -hmm. And um, you've got to have a, a good filter to make that work, though, not the 
not the little fiberglass filter that's made for catching sticks and kids' toys and things like that. Sure. <laughs> Just to keep the uh, keep the equipment clean. Um, this, you've got to have um, at least Merv eight. I, uh, Merv thirteen is probably my minimum that I like to recommend. But to do Merv thirteen on your HVAC system you've got to have a big enough area for it. You can't replace a filter designed for the, the standard one inch fiberglass filter with the, the MERV 13 pleated filter. That's gonna kill the airflow in your system and maybe cause problems with the equipment and, and heating and cooling. So yeah, you well, gotta, you gotta do that right. Right, and even if even if all it does is reduce airflow, then you're you know you have a system that's sized for you know so so let's say best case scenario, all it does is reduce airflow. You have a system that's sized for a certain amount of airflow to make sure you have healthy indoor air quality. If you cut that down, now you no longer have healthy indoor air quality. Even though your primary objective was to make it healthier, you know you you didn't end up doing that in the long run. And so I think that's a really important thing. Uh, and something that has come up, which is that you you can't just swap one for one because the system isn't designed to handle that. Right. Um, so. Yeah, you've got to have uh, enough area, and so the filter has to be bigger in area if you're going to go with a, a higher MERV filter. Mm -hmm. so when when we're doing design for for um, new systems, mostly mostly new construction, but we do a fair amount of renovations work as well. We, um, we've got our little uh, spreadsheet set up so we can size the, the filter properly so that you can put a MERV 13 in and it won't kill the airflow. And, and you, won't, you won't hear the air moving through it. Or you, um, you probably have to get really close to hear the airflow. In my house, we just last fall put in two Mitsubishi air handlers, the ducted mini split air handlers in the attic, mm -hmm. our spray foam attic. And... Um, We've got three return filters and uh, 16 by 25, I think, is the size. So um, very large for the size of systems that we put in. And you have, to, you have to get pretty close to the filters when the system is on to be able to hear the air going through them. So. Yeah. That's great. That's also yeah. great information yeah. is, you know, thinking about what you're going to hear. Um, that was, you always say that you, you, or I say, I learned the hard way. Um, and this is a not ventilation issue, but a sound issue is we built this high performance house and the homeowner wanted to put in a pellet boiler because 10 years ago, pellet boilers were, you know, one of the, one of the ways in Maine that you could do something that was better for the environment. And um, the hopper manufacturer asked if they wanted an insulation core to go on the from the hopper to the boiler and they're like why would we want that and now you can hear every pellet that drops into that that goes down because you've built this high performance house it's really quiet there's no sound and you hear all of those little things so it's yeah. funny that you mentioned that is you know when you're building a high performance house and you have an air infiltration you know or you have a, a a fresh air ventilation system that you want to make sure that you're not listening to it squeal or hum or you know have pressure difference. Um, I had another question that I wanted to ask you about fresh air ventilation. Indoor air quality is only as good as the occupant that lives there and their understanding of how to either maintain or run it or not turn it off. In all of the stuff that you've been doing, I know you said you've been doing some renovations, you're doing new construction. Um, how do you handle sort of the follow-up after the fact to like, especially with new construction, somebody just moved in, they've got like 
20 new systems and they got to figure out how to use or whatever. Do you follow up like a month later and say, Hey, let's clean your ERV together. Let's clean your heat pump filter so, so that they know. Cause this is something that's kind of come up a bunch is you leave them day one, all finished. Here's the keys to the house and you leave and you don't know what they're going to do with it afterwards. Um, are you finding that you're doing videos or training or pointing people in a direction or a homeowner's binder? Uh, what do you guys do afterwards? Well, we, um, we don't follow up that much. A lot of our clients are people who find us because they're smart, they're online, they're doing their research, and they find out, oh, you mean I can't just trust my contractor to design and install the system and it's, everything's going to work fine? And so they hire us because they want third-party design. And um, so they, they're already a step ahead. And, and a lot of times they've, they've read a bunch of my articles and we can always point them to other articles too. So they, they know things like, you know, if you're in a humid part of the country, the, don't put your air conditioner or thermostat in the on position where it's running continuously because you're gonna end up with higher humidity in your house and you may end up growing mold as a result. Um, I did that experiment in my condo a few years ago where <laughs> for one week, so I had this, the system running, and, and so for one week, it was set normally with the fan in the auto position, and our average relative humidity in the house was 58%, and which is, you know, that's not bad. It's 70%, 65 or 70% is where you, you're, you're too high, and I, I like, you know, I, I like to stay under 60. Some people think it's got to be 50 or lower. 55, 58, that's, that's fine. Um, so anyway, I, we ran at 58% for uh, as our average with normal operation. I set the fan to the on position. So the fan ran continuously. When the compressor would come on, it would cool the house. The compressor would go off, but the fan would stay on. And what happens when the fan stays on is that it's blowing across the coil, which is now wet in the humid part of the country. I'm in Georgia. And it's blowing a lot of that moisture right back into the air. It's, it's re-evaporating it into the air. All that moisture, you just spend energy condensing onto the coil to get it out of the house. Now you're putting it right back in the air. Yeah. Our relative humidity within, in less than two days, was up to 70% wow. in the house. From, and, it's, and it stayed over 70% for a week. And, and, and it took about three days to come back down when I set it back to the auto position. So... Yeah, that's, uh, you know, and there are HVAC techs out there telling people to put your fan in the on position because then you're going to circulate that air continuously and you'll get all this filtration. And, and you know, maybe they'll put in a MERV 13 filter where one the system can't accommodate it also. <laughs> yeah. All kinds of things to be careful of. So, yeah, I mean, homeowner education um, is really important. And on my list has been to, put together some guides, you know, for, uh, we don't really have a, an owner's manual that we hand out with our jobs yet, but we need to come up with one. Yeah. It's come up a, a, a lot recently because, um, also up here in the, in the Northeast, um, Zender is the only, uh, ERV or HRV manufacturer who continuously commissions their systems. Like they always come out and they commission the whole system, you know, not just balanced ventilation at the unit itself, but checking, you know, all the ports to make sure that you're getting the ventilation that you want kind of in each location, which I really appreciate. Um, as a HERS writer, 
I also will go around even on my ones that are installed, you know, uh, with a different manufacturer and check all of the exhaust ports and see what we're going, which is actually how I found out that one of the ERVs that we had put in had a very similar situation. Now in Maine, we only have humidity really in the summer and it depends. Sometimes we'll have a week where it's hundred percent humidity. Sometimes we'll have a month where it's hundred percent humidity. Well, a couple of years ago, we had really high humidity for about six weeks. It was like a hundred percent. It was crazy. And um, the ERV installer really felt that it was super important for people to have maximum ventilation all the time. So they had installed the ERV on max ventilation. And this was the first time that I had put this particular ERV in. And I was like, what is going on? Because their heat pumps are trying to, you know, condense the moisture out. The ERV is dumping all of this hundred percent humidity back inside the house. And it was like a swamp inside you know and this is Maine where we tell people they don't even necessarily need air conditioning like it doesn't get that hot here and here we have this crazy swamp condition and and um so I spent a lot of time you know with this homeowner and we walked through and we until we finally figured out what was going on I'm like oh yeah like this thing definitely needs to not be on you know 250 cfm of of continuous ventilation all the time you know in the summertime like this is crazy um but so there's been a lot of pushback and there's still a lot of people here who are exhaust only bathroom fan ventilation style but that kind of goes back to your mechanical ventilation is you're still drawing it in from wherever you have a crack in your house system unless you've got some kind of passive air intake which is better than drawing it in through gaps and cracks but it's still when it's negative 15 degrees in Maine, which we also have in February, it's negative 15 degrees coming in that four inch or six inch hole that you have. And so you've gone through, you've built a really tight house to poke a hole in the side of it seems backwards to me. <laughs> so. Well, and um, those passive air inlets don't always work as diagrammed. I mean, you can, you can put that on your, your schematic and, and draw the arrows of the air going one way through that thing. But depending on the pressures in the house, the air may go the other way. So it's supposed to bring air in. It may actually cause air to go out. And you may be bringing the air in somewhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah so. There's been studies done on those things, and they're not as effective as they uh, a lot of people think they are. No. Yeah. So, so there's this balance between, you know, homeowners and turning off the ERVs or knowing how to run them. Or um, I had a, I can't remember if it was a builder or an architect recently tell me that they went in, um, somebody was having an issue with their, their ventilation system and they went in and they were like, oh yeah, well we just turned it off. And they had never cleaned the filter, not once in seven years. <laughs> and it's like, Oh yeah, uh, you know it's like a force hot air system. You you have to clean the filter, and it's you know it's, it's really easy to do. You know, open the door, you take the core out. You know, and they either weren't taught, or maybe they weren't the original owners of the house, and they didn't know how the system works. And so yeah, they were having an issue with their ventilation system because I don't know that any air it was it's more than Merv thirteen, right? It was so chocked full, there was no air getting through it. <laughs> Well, I think there's uh, an opportunity for enterprising people to create a, a, a new kind of business. Um, and there, are, there are some out there, and that's the, the ventilation contractor, HVAC contractors, HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. But often they don't really know the V part very 
well. They, they know the heating, they know the air conditioning, and especially the equipment side of it, um, not the airflow side as much. And there, let me step back a little bit. There are some really good contractors who do everything and they do it well. But on the whole, HVAC industry has some issues with that. And the, with ventilation now, with ERVs and HRVs out there and um, ventilating dehumidifiers, uh, and, and if you have things like uh, uh, encapsulated crawl space and you've got special ventilation or air treatment down there, uh, encapsulated attic, same thing, you, you really need to not rely on the homeowners to be able to take care of all this stuff. They should have at least annual uh, maintenance contract with somebody who comes in, makes sure all the systems are running properly. And if, you know, if you've got a balanced ventilation system, like an ERV, that it's still balanced a year later and filters get changed and all that. I think there's a real opportunity for either contractors who are already in the field to have a maintenance division as part of their their system um, or for somebody else to kind of pick up that maintenance because um, here in Maine, we still heat with fuel oil number two uh, in a lot of places. And yeah. there is very, very few homeowners who would say, yeah, I know how to clean my boiler with fuel oil number two. And they don't do it. Now, granted, they also don't all call the heating tech and have them do it, although they should know to have regular maintenance and have it done once a year. And, you know, the good people are, are doing that. Um, they don't always do that, but they, they know they don't know enough about it to do it. So if they're going to do it, they call somebody. And so even though some of the technology is getting easier, you know, you still have to clean out the compressors for your heat pumps. And, you know, it's not just the little screen that's in the head that you change that filter and hopefully you wash that off frequently. Um, and so we do have um, a couple that we work with that offer maintenance contracts as part of it. And I think that is the smartest thing. I think they get a lot of repeat business that way also. It's like, hey, we had so-and-so install our heat pumps or our ERVs and they come and they check it and they do whatever, like you should definitely do this. And so um, I think there is a big opportunity as ventilation standards become more stringent for people to, to start something there. And when it was on the BS and beer show, I think there was someone from Connecticut who said, wait, who do you know? Where are you located? Who, who does this? And I was like, oh, we're not in Connecticut. I can't help you, but I'm sure somebody in Connecticut does it. <laughs> do you guys do the installs too, or do you just design systems? No, we are not in the contracting world. We, we um, do HVAC design, third-party HVAC design. Um, we, we don't really do commissioning either. I would love to get into that, but uh, most of our work is all over the country. Uh, we have a fair amount here in the Atlanta, Georgia area too, but a lot of it is all over the place in California and Texas and Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And, um, I, I don't know how many states we've done. We've probably done most of the states by now. How hard do you have to fight to try to get people to move their ventilation and heating into the conditioned volume? <laughs> Well, as I mentioned earlier, most of our clients are um, well-educated when they find us and they're, if they weren't praying that before, when they read some of the stuff on my, on my blog, they, they make that decision. We, we do have some that either just can't make it work with their design or their existing house. And so we, we have to deal with that as best we can. 
Now, my friends out in California in a dry climate uh, don't have a problem with system. Well, the, the, what they do out there is they, um, they, they often have the air handler and the ductwork up in unconditioned attics, but they um, bury the ducts very deeply in the insulation. So it's, it's essentially in conditioned space because there's so much insulation over the top of the ducts, which is much better than having the ducts running above the insulation um, in a very hot attic, 130 degree attic, um, or hotter sometimes. But yeah. the, um, the problem for us on this side of the country is that if you bury insul or ductwork in insulation, you increase the risk of condensation on the jacket of the ductwork. And then you can get that, um, because the, the, the outer jacket on the, the ductwork is cooler inside the insulation, the, the blown insulation all over it, it's closer to the dew point, you get condensation, that, that condensation drips down and, and gets under the drywall for the ceiling, and then ceiling spots start showing up down below, and people say, where's that water from? <laughs> Yeah, so I had uh, to be careful with that. I had one client, and I, I think their bathroom uh, bathroom vent fan was buried in the insulation, and it had a similar, and it was cool. And so they would turn it on, but they wouldn't turn it on soon enough and warm up the pipe, and they had water that would just run back down the vent and into you know through the vent. And they're like, "Why is the vent dripping? Like, what what is happening here? You know, like we thought we were exhausting this moisture out, and instead it's just condensing in here, and it's all coming back in, and you know it's pitched the wrong direction, and yada yada yada." So, um, always really interesting. Um, I did a bunch of large scale energy engineering projects uh, for a couple of years, and I've been in attics in Texas, and you know going through there and looking at all of this ductwork above the insulation in these attics in Texas. And it's, it's, when were we there? I want to say we were there in May and it was already 130 degrees oh. in the attic. And you're thinking it's not even hot in Texas yet. Like what happens when it gets, you know, how much more does that add to the size of the system that you need to come up with to compensate for that? Well, if you put ductwork in an unconditioned attic in the, in the South, say Texas, um, you're probably looking at an extra, it depends on the size of the, the system and the zone that you're working with. But let's say, let's say you would normally need um, two ton system. You might have to put in a two and a half, maybe even a three ton system, depending on how much ductwork there is up there. Yeah. So yeah, it's at least half a ton extra on a two ton system because yeah. of that, that extra load. Um, I think it's awesome that you guys are doing uh, design and all over the country. I'm a big proponent of um, integrated design and having kind of everybody. I know at the point at which I no longer know enough, you know, <laughs> I was like, okay, I can understand how this should operate. I can tell you how to maintain it. I can tell you whose service contract is, you know, whatever, but I can't size this for you. Or like I use my energy software, not to size heating systems or ventilation requirements or anything, but as a sort of check and balance. Like if it comes back and the contractor's like, you need a, a 50,000 BTU boiler and my energy software is saying they need 11. I'm like, whoa, okay. What, hold on a second here. Like what? what's going on? Um, so I know when I don't know enough. Um, and so I really love having a great team put together where everybody kind of works together. So um, I think everybody should do kind of what you're doing and have a whole design done and have that be done during the architecture process so that they can get the ductwork 
inside the conditioned volume or conditioned attic or, you know, wherever you're running it. Or, you know, in my case, I want the water heater to be as close to the water sources as possible. But, but yeah, so, so I appreciate that you're doing that for residential. I don't find that a whole lot in Maine. Most of it is our contractors and some of them are, are really great, just like you said, great installers who, you know, do manual J calculations or they'll go through the whole process. Um, I don't find MEP as much until you get up to the commercial world. Are you doing more commercial or residential? No, All residential. 99% residential. Yeah, yeah. So, so fingers crossed Maine's going to catch up to Georgia and you know, <laughs> this is going to become part of the regular system for people moving forward. So um, I will make sure that when the podcast comes out, we share the link so that people can pre-order your book on there okay. um, and add a link to Energy Vanguard so they can read the last uh, 10 years worth of articles that you've written. Um, okay. Anywhere else that people should get in contact with you? So you can find the campaign for the pre-orders for the book I'm writing at publishizer.com. That's publishizer, the word publish with I-Z-E-R.com. And if you click on live campaigns, you'll find my book in there. A house needs to breathe, or does it? Or does it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> to be continued, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right, that's great. I will make sure that we put that up with the podcast. Um, any other parting words that you think people should know or uh, be aware of with residential design from your expertise? Work with people who know their stuff. Read Green Building Advisor and the Energy Vanguard blog and subscribe to Joe Stebrick's uh, monthly newsletter at buildingscience.com. There's a lot of great resources out there now. And uh, I, um, the Building Performance Association has a great website uh, and, and forum. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of really good places to find information these days. It was a pleasure having Allison on today. I love having building professionals uh, who are experts in their industry and especially in industries that I know a little bit less about. So HVAC is definitely something that I love to learn more about. It's part of the reason why I took the Passive House course originally was to learn more about how they handle their mechanical ventilation and heating sources in a Passive House. And having Allison on to talk about indoor air quality now with the uh, upcoming release of his book and the virus that we've got going on throughout the country seemed like an opportune time to have him talk about that. So if you enjoyed the podcast, like us on Apple iTunes, share a comment on our uh, website, www.matramarch.com slash the dash podcast. Reach out to me, Emily at matramarch.com. And if you're in the Northeast and you enjoyed the discussion with Mike on Aero Barrier, tune in next week to talk to Jake about Aero Barrier here in the Northeast. Um, he's located in Rhode Island, but would cover most of New England. So tune in next week to hear more from Jake and more on Aero Barrier. Thanks for tuning in and have a wonderful day.